Hey, it's Sean Fennessy, host of The Big Picture. Did you just see the latest tentpole blockbuster? Or a surprisingly fun new movie on a streaming service? Or maybe you just want to bone up on the greatest films ever made? From reviews to rankings, career retrospectives to movie drafts, and everything in between, The Big Picture is here for you. Listen to The Big Picture for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Aaron Sorkin is here. Great to be here. I don't even know how to ID you. I feel like you've been in my life for like 30 plus years now. That's really nice. You've been in my life as well. Oh, I really appreciate enjoyed that. listening to you. I remember, I guess A Few Good Men was the first one, but I remember when that was coming out, early 90s. When a movie, a movie poster really mattered back then. It was like Cruz and Nicholson and yeah. Demi Moore are going to be in a movie together. What the hell? It was great. And that was my first movie. And it was, uh, I adapted it for my first play. Uh, uh, I was a kid and lightning struck. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I was so you write a play world. and eventually it turns into a movie with probably the two biggest movie stars we had at the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, what happened was, well, first of all, the, the, the play got done, which was uh, unusual enough. It's such a big cast. Uh, I, I was in my mid-20s. It's hard doing new plays. It's especially hard doing them when you've never heard of the guy uh, who wrote it. But the play got done. And Nicole Kidman, who was Mrs. Tom Cruise at the time, came to see uh, the play, called her husband, said, you really should get here. There's a part you're going to want to play. And it all happened that fast. Did, when you wrote the part of Kathy, did you have like a Cruise-type person in mind? Like, do you think of... Actors when you're writing characters or no? I'm always the first person to play these parts. I'm I oh it's always yeah <laughs> I'm it's I'm playing every part the men the women um uh, I'm jumping up around uh, jumping around in my office uh, playing all the parts. So uh, the first time an actor is actually cast, it's a little bit of an adjustment for me. You feel that jealous? Yeah, uh, uh, that it's uh, that it's not me playing the part. But um uh, but listen, by the time Tom played the part, three other people had already played the part on Broadway. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously he, he was great in the movie. I loved working with him, working with Jack Nicholson is something I'll never forget the whole cast. We did a rewatchables pocket. We did this podcast called the rewatchables where we break down movies that people have seen a million times. Uh 
and we did a few good men. Nicholson's like barely in that movie. It feels so like he's in, in it for scenes. two hours. He's in yeah. like four scenes. Right. Um, uh, he shot for two weeks uh, on the movie. That was it. And uh, and the the whole second week uh, was uh, was just the stuff in the courtroom, uh, his testimony. And I looked over one day, and Christian Slater uh, had come. He just wanted, like, he had heard that Nicholson was doing this. That's he when just, he was young Nicholson. That's when he was not young Nicholson. And I looked over, and Christian Slater was mouthing the words uh, uh, along wow. with Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah, I remember in the research of that, they were saying, like, they shot Nicholson scenes. I don't remember if it was first or whatever, but then they had to shoot the camera angles of everybody else. And he just kept doing the speech over and over again because he loved it. Lots of times, yes. We, you, you've you've got to shoot a ton of coverage in a scene like that. Uh, you know, not just Nicholson's close-up and medium and wide shots, but you need to cover Tom and to me, and uh, uh, you need to cover Kevin Bacon, you need to cover the jurors, the judge, uh, all the people sitting out in the gallery. So uh, there are a couple of dozen of d- different camera angles. And with someone like Nicholson, uh, you know, as the hour would get late, ordinarily, uh, you'd say, you know, Jack, you can go home and uh, uh, a second AD can, right. can sit and read it. Uh, and Nicholson just kept doing it over and over and said uh, to the director, Rob Reiner, Rob, I just love to act. It's amazing. It's such like a weirdly inspiring story. Yeah. He could have just, he could have had like somebody's nephew come in and sit in the chair and Nicholson said, nah, I want to do it again. And you know, the, the, I think that the vibe that most people get from Jack Nicholson is that he's, and I don't really give, give a damn, uh, a guy I can phone it in at this point in my life. It's exactly the opposite. He is a yeah. really hard worker. He's a total pro. He wants to be great. Uh, he doesn't phone anything in. I tried not to do a lot of research for this because I like having, Good. I like finding out stuff. The one thing I couldn't remember was how you got started writing. So I did look that up and I had no idea. Like you didn't even write really until after college. Like you wanted yeah. to be an actor. And I was like, how the fuck did this guy didn't write? Like you weren't writing for your school newspaper and doing all that stuff. You I, just weren't. To, to me, until I got out of college, writing was just a chore to be gotten through for a school assignment. I just never written for pleasure before. Uh, and then there was this one night I was living in, I was sharing a tiny studio apartment uh, about half the size of the room we're in right now. Uh, and I, everyone I knew was out of town. It was one of those nights in New York where it just feels like everybody has been invited to a party you haven't been invited to. Yeah. I didn't have $3 in my pocket. Uh, and in this apartment was uh, a semi-automatic typewriter. Uh, it's electric keys and a manual return. And the TV was broken. The stereo was broken. The only thing to do was to put a piece of paper in that typewriter and start typing. And that's the first so time. So you just pure boredom? Pure boredom. The first time I wrote for fun was the first time I wrote dialogue uh, and, uh, and loved it. And I just, I stayed up all night writing. And I feel like that night has never ended. See, I really worry about creativity going forward just in America because of all the ways we have not to be bored now. Mm-hmm. So you take you in that situation. So what year is that? Like 1980? That was, uh, God, it would have been uh, like 1985 probably. So now 1985, you in 2019, mm-hmm. you're just on, like online. You're probably on some message board or like you're on Tinder. Like you're you're not so bored that you're like, I'm going to write some dialogue. You have better options. That's right. Because um, I worry uh, that, that boredom, I think, is like the greatest thing you can have sometimes creatively. It's like, ah, fuck. All right. I'll write I, something. I couldn't agree more. And there are too many 
uh, you're right about this. There are too many easy boredom killers. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm the parent of a teenager, so I've, I've raised a daughter entirely in the digital world. Um, and, uh, it's, it's changing our kids. Yeah. I don't, in some ways for the better, but I think in ways like this, like sometimes it's all right to have nothing else to do and to try to force yourself to do something, whether it's read a book or. Exactly. First of all, you you, you should learn that, 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 yeah, I know it, but, but we're right. Um, uh, uh, first of all, you should learn how to deal with boredom. Then there are ways to overcome boredom, which are a lot more productive than uh, checking out a YouTube video. Nobody's bored anymore because there's always something to do that can at least keep you kind of casually engaged. Yeah. Unless you don't have a phone or the internet. Right. And let's assume most people do uh, have a, <laughs> I think a they phone do. or the internet. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that's happening is uh, our kids are literally becoming chemically addicted to their phones. If you're a gambling addict, the moment that's giving you the dopamine rush uh, is not when you win. It's when the roulette wheel is spinning, uh, okay? In that moment, uh, you're about to find out if you won. And the same thing is happening when our kids reach in their pocket to get their phone to see if someone responds to their text, if they have a new like, a new follower, a new friend, uh, uh, that kind of thing. They are getting a chemical rush when they put their hand in their pocket to get their phone. And so they're going to do it uh, all day long. And that's how our kids are, are, are chemically addicted to technology. I only want to keep the two old guys talking about how life used to be for two more minutes. Sure. Um, I worry that everybody's having like roughly the same experiences. And as a writer, that's bad. Like think about your background and you go on, you become one of the greatest screenwriters we have. And you have this completely abnormal background that can't be replicated in Mm -hmm. any way. And now it's like a lot of the people that get into writing, they kind of go through the same farm system. Either they go through the, you know, like the comedy writers, they Uh all go to Harvard. Yeah. Um, or the people that moved to LA and they're in screenwriters and they're in improv groups, but there's like these buckets that you have to be in and the abnormal backgrounds seem to win over and over again. The people that didn't do the same traditional pass. And I, I just hope we keep that. No, there's no question about it. I, I used to actually worry a lot that, um, that my childhood had been too normal uh, for it just wasn't a good recipe for good American writing. It turns out my childhood wasn't as normal as I thought it was. <laughs> Nobody's uh, childhood looking is normal. Back. Right. Um, but uh, let's let's continue being two old guys uh, uh, for a second. Another problem uh, is, because uh, I, I think that there are a lot of problems with social media and that they kind of are, are drowning any upside that there might be. But another problem is that, that people are curating their, their lives now yeah um uh they're they're showing you the photographs that they want to show you where they were at the cool party or they're with the the cool people uh they're you're not having conversations you're just kind of posting something witty uh uh, again you're you're, we're curating our lives uh and it's the best possible version of it yeah we're, we're sending our exactly we're sending our representative uh uh to uh to to be the kind of kind of the movie version uh, of us in, in the real world. In the real world isn't like that. I mean, Tommy, I, Tommy, I yell at all the time. He's on. What do you no, yell at Tommy for? No, no, Tommy's actually good. <laughs> I, we, we like people skills here at The Ringer. But I, I do think there's a pressure with social media to kind of update people with what's going on in your day because that's what 
life is like now. And I, I just wonder how it's going to affect writing going forward. Now the movie eighth grade, which we had Bo Burnham was in here mm-hmm. and I thought that was a really smart movie. And that's basically a lot of what that movie is about, about this character that's so awkward socially. And the one thing she has control over are these social media and Instagram pictures and things like that. It was really interesting. It, it is a great tool for people who are awkward, or awkward socially. And in fact, when I wrote The Social Network, a lot of what was behind Mark Zuckerberg's uh, motivation there was he was awkward uh, in the real world and he, he built a tool that he needed. He, uh, he built a world that he was the mayor of. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he could be his best self. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's a... That's a nice thing. I get that. It, listen, even I, I, I think I would rather email someone than talk to them uh, on the phone. I'm just going to be better at it. You know, I'm just going to be more comfortable. Uh, but it, it's uh, that that's in moderation. And I, I feel like we've gone way past the, the line of moderation. What do you think is better? Let's go positive. What do you think okay. is better in 2019 for a writer than it was in 1985? Um, or 1993, uh, the software final draft. That's about it. There, there's, there's a great piece of, uh, of writing software called final draft, uh, that, um, you know, where we used to have to use white out and staple things and scotch tape them. Uh, uh, now you can, you can move words around I think with ease. I'm 99% sure I'm right about this. I think it was, I had somebody on my podcast and I'm almost positive it was Paul Thomas Anderson who said he still writes in word doc. Uh, I'm, and then I'm, has somebody translate it because he just never could get used to Final Draft. You know, I'm not surprised. I used to do that too. I uh, I wrote, it wasn't in a Word doc, but it was in a piece of, uh, this was during the West Wing, uh, antiquated software called MacWrite. Uh, and the writer's assistants would always translate it into uh, Final Draft. And they would beg me, just, we'll teach you how to use Please. Final Draft. It's, it's really easy. <laughs> I'll just say, I don't want to, you know, I've got like muscle memory of yeah. where my fingers go. And I don't want to like have to be thinking about the keys uh, when I'm writing. And then they finally lied to me. Um, I got whatever the newest, I've, I've always had Macs. And so whatever the newest Mac, the G4, it's, it's something that had just come out. Um, uh, and so, uh, I got it and they told me, oh, you know what? Your software doesn't work, uh, on this new Mac. So sorry, you gotta, you, you gotta just gotta suck draft. it up and do yeah, it. Yeah, They just, they liked me and it, it was, it, it was it, smart. I'm glad that they did. Yeah. I really like smart move. Now. <laughs> so when few good men took off, what happened to your life? Cause you had American president like a year or two later, right? Had Ma- American president a year or two later. Uh, he, here's but what, what happened to you, like, because that was like the era of the early 90s, hot screenwriters. Right. Premier magazine writing about the, like, so you're right in the middle of that all of a sudden. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, and, well, here's one of the things uh, that, that ha- well, first of all, two, two things happened. One was, uh, I, I, I had never thought about being a screenwriter or a, a television writer. Uh, once I started writing I, I was just going to be a playwright. That's that's really all I knew. I watched movies and television shows as much as anybody else, uh, but I wasn't watching them like a, a as if I were a student the way I would uh, watch plays. Uh, but a few good men took me out to L.A. Uh, to do the adaptation, uh, and you know I was going to come right back and do my next play. But I stayed and did another movie, and then another, and then a TV series, and, uh, and that was your life. And that was my life. The other thing that happened was. Uh, when I was I, 25, I uh, tried cocaine for the first time. 
And I remember thinking it's a good thing I don't have money because uh, this could be a real problem. <laughs> and, and I got money. Uh, no. uh, and, uh, and it became a real problem. Uh, so I lost my 30s, basically, uh, to cocaine addiction. I was a pretty high-functioning addict. I was able to write while I was doing it. Were your uh, 30s, you're, so you're saying like the mid to late 90s that at that time or later? Yeah, I went to rehab in 1995. Okay. And then Sports Night was after that, though. Sports night was four years after that. So it was almost like the the Hollywood cliche of a guy hits it big and can't handle it for a little bit and then figures it out. It's absolutely that cliche, yes. Um, and uh, my recommendation is don't try it. That's the, the easiest way to not become addicted to it. Yeah. So American president, you went back to the president character two different times in uh-huh. your career. What, so you do American president first, which, by the way, has aged really well. And it's kind of, it, and I think I, I haven't gone back to look at it in a while. Has it held up? So the other one is Dave. Right. Both, both were president's movies, but you know, there's something about the, that era of the nineties where there was still some sort of innocence to it. Yeah. That there were, was captured in those movies, right? You're right. The president could still be a great person. Mm-hmm. It's not the Nixon hangover. There's actually, this could be a good job with the right person. Yes. There was also um, some mystery about, the White House. It was mm. a palace we'd never been inside before. So both with the American president, Dave, and then later with the West Wing, anytime you saw the president just like being a person, being a father, was like, uh, being a friend, uh, it was kind of cool, you know? Yeah. Oh, like that's how he gets his toothpaste. Um, uh, that's how it works behind the scenes. Listen, the whole first five minutes, the opening five minutes of the West Wing, uh, was based entirely on nobody knowing what the acronym POTUS uh, stood for. The audience couldn't know what that stood for. The opening uh, wouldn't work, and no one knew what it stood for then. So you, when these things are done, you don't go back and think about them or try to learn from them or anything? They just kind of happened? I, I, I do try to learn from them uh, in, the, in the moment. Um, it's hard for me to go back and, uh, and look at them. Sometimes... Uh, Sometimes I do because I'll be asked to, you know, we'll, we'll hit a West Wing anniversary or something, and I'll be asked to look at a particular episode uh, that we'll be talking about. And uh, listen, there are times that I'm uh, actually very pleased. Well, I think, gee, you know, that one, that one worked. Yeah. Uh, that was great. But I've never written anything that I didn't wish I could have back and write again. Really? Nothing? Nothing. Social Network's really good. I appreciate that. Thanks. That um, was we did a rewatchables on that too, and we probably the best movie of the decade. Ah, uh, that's awfully nice of you because uh, it's it's the most rewatchable. It was the best in the moment. The actors are the best. I think it's taken on a different meaning now with what's happened it, in the last four or five it, years. It has. I think it's uh, the most important movie of the decade. Well, that's that's awfully nice and generous of you to say that. I, I had a great time writing it. I had a great time making it. David Fincher. Uh, uh, the director just hit it out of the park. That well, cast. I remember. I remember finding. I don't remember when somebody was like, "It's Sorkin and Fincher." It's like, oh, oh, they got the big guns for this. This is good. It was this uh, is, this uh, is a good uh, one. A, 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 a big gun and a half. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, Fincher's amazing. That uh, the first scene in the Social Network, which is Jesse Eisenberg and Rooney Mara, yeah, uh, sitting at a bar. Just it's a bad date. It's not going to end well for Jesse. Um, we. We shot, he did 99 takes uh, of that over two nights. 99 takes of a, it's not a scene that's complicated to shoot, 
Um, uh, you just you get the two shot and then the over uh, and the over and a couple of sizes. Uh, but he, because of all the language, uh, uh, what David wanted, and I really appreciated this, was the repetition. He just wanted them doing it over and over and over, just to casualize the language. Uh, he didn't want them giving the performance they were giving in the shower before they came to the set. Which is probably a problem with some of the stuff you write, right? You write these it, great meaty dialogue things that people, the actors, it can probably love get doing. Very operatic. Yeah. It, it can it can teeter on uh, melodrama. So he David would knock that out right away. Ninety nine takes. We begged him just do one more, uh, uh, so the story will be a hundred. And he said, "No, ninety nine's almost better." <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Was that the first scene you wrote of the movie? Yeah, uh, I've so never written anything there. out of order. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can't. I've, it's an OCD thing. I have to go. Well, I remember one of the things with you is you never like to plan too far ahead, right? Which is the same way. That's how I've always written my columns. I sometimes, mm-hmm. I, not that I write that much anymore, but I would always, I'd have a basic idea in my head, but not really know it was going to happen until your fingers start moving. So that's what you do. It's kind of, yeah. And with, with, uh, with series television, um, other showrunners, you know, they've broken, they and the writing staff, they've broken the whole season uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, they know what the whole season arc is going to be, so they know where you've got to be by Christmas, and so this is where we have to be by Thanksgiving, and this is where we have to be by Columbus Day. Um, and I've never been able to uh, uh, do that. I, I would write an episode only every once in a while knowing what was going to happen, a little of what was going to happen in, in the next episode. Uh, but most of the time, uh, I'd, I'd finish an episode. I'd feel great for three minutes because uh, I got a script <laughs> finished. And in television, all it means is you haven't started the next one yet. And that it's just gnawing at you. Yeah. It's hanging over your head. Um, well, back then, by the way, I mean, this current era would have been so much better for the West Wing for you. You would have had we, you would have do thirteen episode seasons instead of we, how many were you doing yeah, per we year? We would do twenty two. Twenty two is insane. Yeah, but I love Lucy would look at twenty two and say, "You guys uh, are wimps." We did thirty six. <laughs> <Right. laughs> twenty two, like really dense one hour shows is like I know. Uh, that's my, why you lasted four years. You, uh, you, there's no way you can do that anymore. That it's it's tough. I I I admire anyone who does any television show, uh, and there was actually uh, the. Sports Night was two years, and the second year of Sports Night was the first year of the West Wing. So I was writing a Sports Night and a West Wing uh, every week. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you went backwards because I want to get to Social Network. I want to go a little chronologically. Sure. Sports Night. Sports Night. So you do American President. American President's a hit, right? American President's a hit. Um, You got to work with Michael Douglas at the tail end of the Michael Douglas Apex. Like uh, a legendary eight-year run for him. Uh, sure, I think. Uh, uh, listen, um, uh, he won a Golden Globe last night. I think we're. I, I think I don't think the Michael Douglas Apex has ended. Um, but uh, I got it's to work with thirty-year Apex. <laughs> he's, he's a uh, he's a great actor. He's a great producer, and I, and I love him. He's, he's to me. It's like if he was an athlete, he would be the most. He's like the Hakeem Olajuwon. That's exactly right. Of of actors, he's yeah. like go look at his IMDb. It's like home run. Home run, yeah. triple, home run, home run for like nine years. Yes. Um, and don't forget, he produced One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, and uh, China Syndrome. And, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, I got to work with uh, with Michael and with Annette Bening uh, <clears throat> and uh, Michael J. Fox, too. Uh, oh, yeah, he's really good in that movie. He's terrific. I also think there's a great conversation that I've 
actually had with people about if you could have a movie president to be the actual president, who would you pick? Douglas is in like the semifinals. I don't um, know if he wins. I'm really Ke- glad to hear that. Kevin Klein, Douglas, um, Martin Sheen's obviously in there. Well, uh, it, I also am partial to Jeff Bridges in The Contender. I love, He's I love really The good Contender. And I love Jeff, Jeff Bridges in The Contender. Um, I, I love the character. I love his performance. I love that whole movie. That was uh, kind it, of on your corner a little bit. Another president thing. Uh, they should have gotten your permission. Yes. No, 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 no. He, uh, 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 yeah, I was working my side of the street a little bit, but, but did, did really well. At least give uh, me a heads up. Street. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I'd done the American president, uh, and I needed a new idea for a movie. And, uh, while I was writing the American, I was living, uh, in a hotel. Yeah. Uh, and going to bed very late at night. Uh, more like very early in the morning. I turn on ESPN, and there would be the loop of last night's Sports Center. Oh yeah, like Kilborn and those guys. Kilborn, um, uh, Oberman, uh, uh, Stu that, Scott, sure, um, Linda Cohn. She's still there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I, I just thought it was a really good TV show. Uh, and you know, the, 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 this is sports center ads, uh, were getting to me too. It, uh, it really felt like, boy, that would be like a, a, a great place to work. That'd be a great place to, to meet your best friend, to meet your girlfriend. It just seems like a really fun place to work. Uh, and so in thinking about what my next movie, uh, might be, I was thinking about a sort of broadcast news, but at ESPN, uh, type show. I was interested to see if that played a factor in it, bro, because that's like eight years earlier, probably. Yeah, it's uh, and the uh, one of the all timers. Uh, exactly. And for me, the first time I kind of noticed that uh, um, that a movie can be driven by good writing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I should have noticed it decades before. Uh, Jim Brooks wasn't the first person to write a good movie, um, uh, but it was just the first time I thought. Yeah, I would have loved to have been the guy who uh, who wrote this. So broadcast news was a big deal for me. I'm so now I'm thinking about broadcast news, but uh, at ESPN, and uh, I said to my agent, "But all the ideas I'm having are are really short stories. They're they're not a long arc." And I said, "Well, you're describing uh, a television series." Yeah, we have this thing called a television. <laughs> right, show shorter shows. Um, uh, why don't I set up a meeting with you and uh, the folks at ABC? Uh, so I said, "Sure." And again, they're used to somebody coming in and being able to describe all the characters and they have an outline of the first eight episodes and that kind of thing. I wasn't able to do any of that. All I was able to do is tell them exactly what I told you. I want to do a show set behind the scenes at an ESPN type place. I don't know anything else about it. You're just going to have to let me go off and write it. Uh, and they did. Uh, and and I- then you went and spent time with... Like, did you went, go to I, Bristol? Yeah, I hung out. Um, uh, I hung out in Bristol, and that was great. Uh, they were very welcoming. Uh, it was fun place to just to hang to watch them uh, put a show together. It's still kind of magic to me uh, how the how the clips get edited and how the copy gets written in time for uh, for that broadcast. Well, and also pre-internet, it was beginning of the internet, but right? It was. That show had so much more weight because you come home at two in the morning from a bar and it was like, did the Celtics win? 
That's right. <laughs> Did right. anything happen? Wait, there was a trade, and you would just find out all these things on Sports it's, Center. You know what? It, it's. I think it still has a lot of weight, and it's still for me. It works as comfort food. Uh, it's still, uh, and I you think know, they realize that now because mm-hmm. they kept trying to mix it and change it. Now it's just like, eh, let's show highlights. You guess what people like? Right, highlights of things. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold Slurpee drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small Slurpee drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms, all rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All that was great, but I still didn't have uh, an idea. You know, something's got to happen uh, in an episode of television. Something has to happen uh, in the pilot. And I had no ideas until my best friend was going through a divorce. And uh, he had, his son was eight years old at the time. And he came to me really sad uh, one day because the night before, uh, I think Charles Barkley had thrown somebody through the glass window of yeah, a, bar. a bar. Am I yeah. getting this right? Uh, and my friend said, you know, Jake, his son, Jake and I were, were really starting to bond uh, over sports. And now with my not being around so much, who are his male role models uh, are gonna be? You know, Who's gonna be there to say, hey, Jake, you shouldn't throw somebody through uh, a plate glass window. And so I had my idea for uh, the first episode of Sports Night. Take 
the Peter Krause character, have him going through a divorce, have this kind of news uh, uh, come over. Um, and he's sort of at the end of his rope in, in the pilot episode. You know, he calls himself a, a, a PR guy for punks and thugs. Um, uh, and then bring in the redemptive value of sports from, from left field. Somebody just does something uh, extraordinary. You know, the thing that makes us watch a 10,000 meter uh, a race, something we wouldn't normally watch. But if you, right. if you tell us, if you, Bill Simmons tells us a story uh, about it before we watch it, we're, we're going to watch it like it's the seventh game of the World Series. What was ESPN's reaction to that show? Uh I think ESPN uh, uh, liked the show. It seemed I think, like they were okay with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- there were ESPN people who reached out to me and uh, and said they liked it. Oberman uh, was a fan. Stuart Scott. Uh, Linda Cohen, I mentioned, was not a fan. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, I, and I'm not sure why, but corporately, I assume that they were... Did you get some John Walsh time when you were researching that show? Yeah. Yeah. He was my I'm mentor not... at ESPN. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That was, I mean, interesting guy. Yeah. He um, actually would have been a good character for the show because he could bar- he could barely see, but he was the most important TV person they had for 12 have, years. He would have been. And I imagine that one day there will be some a, sort of a movie about, yeah. you know, because it all started with two guys who wanted to broadcast Connecticut women's right. softball, right? They've talked about, I mean, my friend Jim Miller did the oral history of it. And I think they optioned in a movie, but to try to do like the first five years of it, basically yeah. of how crazy it was. The, the other thing that happened with that show, they, they stuck a laugh track on it for Sports like night. two thirds of the year. That was like your first where yeah. you really flipped out on a network <laughs> or a company, right? It's true. I'm not sure if I flipped out, but here's what happened. Um, I remember, I remember rooting for you because I was always on the side of the artist. I appreciate I'm that. like, I love that this guy's going at them about this laugh track thing. It, Listen, if this had happened today, of course there'd be no laugh track uh, on no, the that show. No, that's like the prototypical um, single camera show. Yes. Uh, but ABC was concerned about Sports Night because it didn't really look or feel or sound like uh, a sitcom, uh, a, like a half-hour show. And, you know, I mentioned Sports Center is comfort food. Sitcoms are supposed to act that way, too. Television has a, a different relationship with its audience than movies or, or or plays do. It's a much more intimate relationship than it has. It comes into your home. Often you watch it when you're alone, uh, when you're cooking dinner, when you're going to bed. Uh, and a, a big reason why you watch Seinfeld or Friends uh, is because you just want to hang out with those people. Uh, uh, yeah. The same way I wanted to hang out with Oberman and Dan uh, Patrick and... Uh, and those guys. Um, and so you want that familiar feel, that three joke a page feel, the sound of that laugh track. And uh, and those laughs are like were recorded for the Danny Thomas show. Right. Uh, those are dead people laughing uh, <laughs> jokes. Um, and so ABC wanted to do what they could uh, to make this kind of unfamiliar animal more familiar. And uh, so they, they wanted to use the laugh track. And uh, I, we, um, it, it was a big battle. Uh, it was chronicled in a long story in, uh, in the New Yorker. 
Uh, oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, uh, uh, gotta uh, go back and read that. Uh, yeah, it's a it, it's a cool story, and it's looking back, it's funny the way I folded. Uh, but um, uh, they they had also they they wanted us to shoot it in front of a studio audience. Once you shoot the front show in front of a studio audience, you have to use a laugh track. You don't have a choice anymore because you're going to be using different takes from different yeah. shots, and the the laughs are going to be uneven. So you've got to uh, uh, juice them and and smooth it out. I didn't want to use a, a a live audience because again, this wasn't uh, you know a show like whether it's All in the Family yeah, or Everybody Cheers. Loves Raymond or Cheers. It's it's a proscenium set. You're basically watching uh, a one act play, uh, and the audience can sit there as if they were watching the Tonight Show. Our, our set, most of it, the audience couldn't see. It was deep, uh, and you wanted the camera to go way in there. You didn't want it to stay uh, at the at the edge of the proscenium. So I didn't want the studio audience. I didn't want the laugh track. Uh, a lot of the laughs weren't bam, bam uh, uh, laughs. They'd be inside of lines. They'd be something you'd smile about, something you'd think about, uh, that kind of thing. And so uh, I, I would, when we went into the, the, the mixing studio to put the laugh track in, uh, I, I would laugh it as little as possible until by the last episode of the first season. In the second season, they finally said uncle they said you can get rid of There's the just a track. smattering of laughter by the last episode by the last episode it sounds like three guys on the crew <laughs> couldn't quite help themselves they just they had to uh, laugh at that joke and then it's gone and then in the second season we're clean you know what you said about how tv the familiarity of a tv show is one of the reasons it works i was just thinking about this because the sopranos was on on friday night they're doing some yeah, kind of marathon. marathon i can't get away from my tv now yeah it was so my wife turned tv on and she was kind of half watching and it was like the ninth episode. I'm like, Sopranos, what season is that? She's like, I don't know. It's just on. And we watched five straight episodes. I know. And she she said something that I thought was really interesting. My wife occasionally will have some real insight. She was just like, I miss these people. They were my friends. Yeah. And I was like, you're right. I miss them too. Like Polly Walnuts was my friend. And then he's gone. That's how you watch TV. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and that, that that's a good thing. You just need to be mindful of it. Uh, you know, when you're making a TV show. Well, people felt that way with The West Wing, right? I mean, that was... Yeah. But that show, so you you had two opposite experiences. You had Sports Night, which was the critically acclaimed, oh, what a tragedy, it didn't last longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then West Wing, which just becomes one right. of the biggest shows in the world. Now, let me just say about the Sports Night and, and any tragic element, it never uh, felt tragic to me. Uh, I I understand that uh, uh, that in network in broadcast television and in the world of we're doing this to make money uh, that it didn't get enough people and we didn't make enough episodes. I meant uh, more that you didn't get to do six years of it. Right. I felt like uh, doing forty five episodes of it for an audience. And by the way, a a, a small audience back then, not enough to stay. Which would never be the biggest show on TV. Exactly. <laughs> like We'd be the highest rated people. show on ABC right now. <laughs> Um, uh, but for a guy who, you know, cut his teeth in, uh, a a church basement in Soho, where if you got 99 people in there, that meant you were sold out, you know, doing 45 episodes for 7 million people every, uh, Tuesday night felt incredibly, uh, fulfilling. And getting to write exactly what you wanted to write, characters that you cared about. Yeah. So that's, that's fun. But then you also have West Wing, which becomes a monster. Right. Uh, West Wing happened very much by accident. 
um, I was, uh, again, I hadn't thought of uh, doing television. This was roughly happening at the same time that my agent was saying, gee, you should uh, meet the ABC people. Uh, he said, uh, I want you to have lunch with John Wells. John Wells uh, is a producer. At the time, he had ER, he had China Beach. He was uh, known as a very successful producer of high-end China uh, Beach, underrated. I thought it was, uh, didn't it win a bunch of Emmys? I mean, yeah, but just like historically, it's just kind of gone. Uh, I, 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 thought, I, I feel like that show was really good. Yeah, and it it uh, it's absolutely should be included in, in what was streaming. the renaissance. It isn't? No, can't stream it. That should be, that should be that's, correct. It's got to be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely should be fixed. Uh, so I thought, yes, I'll have lunch with John Wells. I'm, I, I have no plans to do a, a, a television show, um, but I'm, I'm happy to have lunch with him if he wants to. And the night before that lunch, um, some friends of mine were over to my house at dinner. And uh, I told one of them that I was going to be having lunch with John Wells the next day. He said, oh, you're going to do television. Great. And I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm just having lunch. It's, I'm not going to be doing TV. Yeah. And he saw the American president poster on my wall. And he said, you know what? Make a good series. That. But, you know, forget about the widowed president and, and the romance with the lobbyists. Just like stories about the, the president's senior staff. I said, I, really, I'm not going to be doing a television series. And I went into the lunch the next day, immediately saw this wasn't a hey, how are you? Uh, it's nice to meet you, lunch. Because John was there with these executives from Warner Brothers Television and all these CAA agents. And I sat down. They and had John a suitcase said, of cash. John said, I don't know if it was a suitcase, but uh, uh, John said, so what do you want to do? And instead of saying, I think there's been a misunderstanding. I, I didn't come here to pitch anything. Uh, I just uh, wanted to meet you. I'm a fan. I said, I want to do a show about senior staffers at the White House. I just, the only thing I could remember That's from amazing. the dinner the night before. And John reached his hand across the table, so we have a deal. And I thought, oh, my God, uh, what did I just do? What just do? happened? Yeah. Wait, so who's the friend who pointed out the poster? Uh, he, uh, Kiva Goldsman, who hadn't yet won the Academy Award for writing A Beautiful Mind. Um, this is amazing. Yeah. I did not know the story. Yeah. So now he gets to brag that he talked to you into he, doing the West Wing, which yes. won 100 Emmys. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I, I'm sure I owe him money. Um, <laughs> At least dinner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I wrote the West Wing and Sports Night pilots at the same time, uh, or back to back. I wrote yeah. Sports Night and then West Wing. And fortunately, uh, NBC, that particular administration at NBC wasn't interested in the West Wing. Shows about Washington had never worked. Politics had never worked. Uh, uh, this, this, this was a TV show where people use words like Democrat and Republican, uh, which, yeah, they again, going along with the these people need to be your friends school of, uh, of selling a TV show. If you look back at, at TV shows from the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, and even into the nineties, nobody lives anywhere. Everybody lives in Springfield, right? That's where the Simpsons got it from. The father is a businessman. Uh, that's all we know about him. They don't have a religion or an architect in Mr. Brady's case. Yeah. Businessman, architect, sometimes they're in advertising. <laughs> Ad sales. Um, uh, they do not have a religion. They are white. Um, uh, 
nothing that could possibly alienate the audience. In fact, they would never take a crack at the secretary. Like uh, none of that no, stuff. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. They're no, just no. straight edge heroes. And by the way, even if you look at Seinfeld, um, it's supposed to be the Jerry Seinfeld we know, the Jerry Seinfeld who does the Tonight Show and plays club dates. Yeah. But he's still living in a $1,500 a month apartment. Um, uh, he still has those kinds of problems. His problems aren't, I only have an 80 car garage for my car collection. Right. What do I do with these two new ones? Uh, so um, anyway, the West Wing did have things in it that could possibly alienate an audience. And, uh, and NBC uh, put it in a drawer, which was fine with me because suddenly I was the executive producer and showrunner of a TV show, Sports Night. Yeah, you couldn't I, have done two shows. That's new. Um, even though a year later, that's exactly what would happen. They, Don Allmeyer, uh, who I'm sure you know. Don Allmeyer, um, legend. Yeah. Left NBC um, and was replaced by a man named Scott Sassa, uh, who would then be replaced by Jeff Zucker. Um, Scott Sassa took the West Wing uh, out of a drawer, said, we're doing this uh, now. Um, also, a really nice time to be on NBC. They're they're in the middle time. of like a five six year run of uh, they're kind of the they're doing better than anybody, and now they're it, plugging the shit out of this show's coming. It's yours. That's right. Uh, it, it was actually the perfect moment to to be on it. For it, it was you know it was the Tiffany Network. Um, uh, it was the it was the classy place to be. They had all these hits, and a year into the West Wing. They would lose the NFL and they would lose Seinfeld. Um, so Jesus. suddenly we were, uh, they, they badly, they needed to love us uh, a lot. And ER, uh, Clooney is gone. Uh, Clooney is gone. They and had he, friends though. Friends was a monster. They still had friends. We were on the soundstage. West Wing was on the soundstage right next to Friends. Really? Um, Which, yeah. Where was that? On the Warner Brothers lot. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Uh, we were on stage 17 and they were on stage 23, which you'll just have to trust me. They're right next to each other. Um, but uh, we were, you know, we, we, everybody on that show worked from before sunrise to, to midnight uh, and friends, they were in their seventh, eighth, ninth season, something like that. Monday mornings, we'd see six very expensive cars uh, uh, parked in their spaces. <laughs> Those cars would not be back until Thursday. Yeah, <laughs> um, their stand-ins were uh, were learning the blog, and they just knew how to do the show so well that they could come to the table read and then come to Thursday's camera blocking rehearsal and do the show that night uh, for an audience. How much how much luck do you need with something like West Wing? Obviously, you had a great idea. You had you know one of the best writers writing it. Martin Sheen, he caught him at the right time. But, like, how many ways can something like that go wrong from when it's happening to when it's actually, when I'm watching on television? What are the biggest obstacles? You know, there's a great line that Lawrence Kasdan uh, wrote in the movie Body Heat. Uh, it's a Classic. Thriller. Yeah, uh, right? Bill Hurd has this scene with uh, Mickey Rourke, uh, who is, Mickey Rourke is a career criminal. Um, and Bill Hurt needs the boathouse burned down. Um, I, I won't give away too much. And he needs basically to learn from Mickey Rourke how to commit arson. Yeah. Um, and Mickey Rourke is saying, hey, listen, you've done favors for me. Why don't you just let me do this for you? And Bill is, no, 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 I don't want anybody. I'll, I'll do it. Just teach me how to do it. And Mickey Rourke says, listen, any serious crime, there are about 50 things that can go wrong. And if you can think of 25 of them, you're a genius. 
Um, and I feel that way about doing a television show or a movie or a play. Uh, it, except there are 50 things that can go wrong. And if you can think of 25 of them, you're a genius. There are another 100 things that have to go right. right. And if you can think of half of them, you're a genius. Uh, and with the West Wing, um, what went so very right on the West Wing was the casting. I was going to say, you almost like had, threw a perfect game with the casting. Yeah. Usually there's uh, like the one stinker in there, like, ah, oh, man. And then they'll write that person out within two years. No, you know. That, um, the level J- of actors is Allison really crazy. Allison Richard Schiff, Brad Whitford, uh, Dulé Hill, Rob Lowe, John Spencer, who, who passed away a few years ago, and Martin, and um, uh, Janelle Maloney, and, uh, and, uh, and the whole guest cast. Uh, we were really lucky there. There's also a common denominator with the West Wing and Sports Night, and that's Tommy Schlamme, yep. um, uh, who was uh, the the other executive producer, the principal director of both, directed the pilots, uh, directed, if you have a favorite episode, chances are he directed it. I uh, I saw him a month ago. Oh, yeah? And I told him, like, just fucking do the West Wing again. Just cash, like, the biggest check <laughs> of the decade. <laughs> This is the greatest time ever to do this show. We, if, you could obviously change the president. To if maybe either reflect he or I things. had a had a good idea uh, uh, of how to do it, even just you know nine episodes or something, we would do it. Hold on, Netflix is on the phone. Wait, how much are you offering? Seven hundred million dollars? Okay. We are both. We Helicopter are all helicopter to and uh, from the set. What? All of us involved with the West Wing are are very protective of the memory of the show. We we want people to keep talking about it the way you're talking about it now, and uh, and not say, "Boy, like, if they had just not done that." Uh, you that know, is that true. Re- you didn't have reboot. that. It would be an interesting reboot. By the way, it's been twenty years. Nineteen ninety nine, right? Yeah. I can't when believe was it? it. September. Yeah, so uh, that's uh, crazy. President Sheen came into our lives. Holy cow! It will be twenty years because that was the two big things September. that year were the Sopranos and West Wing. Sopranos both of were which on a year TV before pretty- us. Yeah, um, and uh, no, it, it was Sopranos was ninety nine because that's why they're doing the marathons. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. But it was the beginning of ninety nine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's right. They started in the and both of those shows. Complete your show changed network TV. And that show, I feel like cable was never the same after The Sopranos. That's right. Um, uh, and certainly it, uh, it it played a big part in making a company called HBO. What, um, show, what show, just out of curiosity, are you the most jealous of? You're like, fuck, I wish I'd written that. Um, God. The, uh, all right. You have well, to answer this. You can't get out no, of it. I'm not going to try to get out of it. Um, all right. Uh, but I'm going to name a few shows, not just one. Okay. Wait, you're going to hurt somebody's feelings? <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be one that you're the most jealous of. Okay. I don't know if I'd call it jealousy. Yeah. But I will tell you that The Office um, is uh, a work of genius uh, on so many levels. It's really hard to be hip and have heart at the same time. Yeah. Really hard. Um, and uh, also the show... It wasn't just the uh, the five or six principal characters. It had a cast of twenty people uh, uh, that you cared about. Yeah. Uh, at the center was a tour de force performance from Steve Carell. Yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, the writing simply doesn't get better than that. So I'm going to say The Office, but I'm also going to say Mad Men. Uh, I, I 
uh, I think was was great. Uh, you know, it. I. Uh, well, I'll so say that there, 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 there are other shows that I love too, but uh, uh, but The Office uh, and Mad Men. Right now, the the shows that are on right now um, uh, that I'm. Uh, I'll use your language. Say I'm jealous of it, but mostly I just love watching them. Silicon Valley uh, is fantastic. Barry, okay, Barry, Barry is awesome. I Everybody knew Bill Hader was phenomenally talented, right? Yeah, you did not know that he had that club in his bag. Uh, uh, that he could. Uh, it, I mean, it's funny he's doing a comedy, but that he could play. A, I mean, it's a serious dramatic role uh, that he's playing. He's playing a guy with PTSD. Um, I I got to know him ten years ago. He was on my podcast, and then he'd come on a couple times, and we had some, a couple dinners together. And it was he was always. I gotta say, I wasn't totally surprised by Barry because, like, he's he was like a huge Klaus Kinski fan. He had this whole weird, super nerdy, dramatic side to him. But I was surprised that the show was as good. Uh, me too. Like the odds I, of that happening, where it actually the show's also phenomenal. Is, I'm not. Is, I'm not surprised that that Bill is a is a good actor. I, I people who are uh, f- funny. In, in such a smart way, whether it's Bill or or Jonah Hill mm. um, uh, or or Seth Rogen or Sasha Baron Cohen or Melissa McCarthy, uh, if you see the movie she's out in now, that um, movie was good. I like that movie. Uh, why am I spacing? On it's the like name? I'm. It's an apology. How can, can I, I ever? How can you ever forgive me? Yeah, yeah. Um, can you ever forgive me? Can Is you ever that, forgive yeah. me? That's what's called. Uh, that was good. People who are that funny in such a smart way, it's because they're really good actors. Um, uh, they're not doing something different uh, uh, when, when they're doing these roles. That's why you they're, tried to tap in with Matthew Perry. Yes. Yeah. And he, Matthew Perry is, is one of them. Just a really good actor. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I knew that Bill Hader was going to be uh, a, a really good actor. I just didn't know that he would, he could go there and so successfully. Yeah. So, so uh, West Wing becomes a phenomenon. And it wasn't sustainable. How do you only last four years? Um, well, the, the show lasted seven. I only no, lasted I know. That's, four years. How did you only last four? Well, it. it uh, first of all, before I get to that, let me let me say I I think that for four years I had the best job in show business. Uh, I I loved that group of people. I got to write exactly the show uh, I wanted to write. Uh, I was, I, I always try and be in, in any project that I do, I always try to be the least talented person involved. And I, I was pretty successful with the West Wing, uh, in doing that. Uh, but, um, there, there comes a point, you know, I, I wrote 88 episodes of the show Gosh. and you start to wonder, is, is this fair? Is, is my 80, one of these is going to be my 89th best episode, right? Um, it, won't someone else's best episode be better than my 89th best? Uh, and don't I owe it to the cast and crew, to Warner Brothers and to NBC uh, to have the show? Maybe, maybe I've I've used all the words I know in every order uh, uh, that I know how to use them. Um, and it just felt like the right time to just, I just want to overstay my welcome. So in the 2019 parameters, mm-hmm. What does a West Wing look like? Like it, the idea you had twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. If you're doing it now, would you want to do like twelve episode? Uh, is it on cable? Is it on network? What is like the dream place for it? Uh, 
listen, I, I, I suppose cable would be better because of the freedom that it gives you in terms of, you know, there were a couple of times, uh, just in terms of language, uh, there are a couple of times when I wished Bartlett, because the president, uh, because I do think that the that the best moments on the show are when you see that this isn't a king, it, it's a man. This is a guy with a temp job um, right. uh, who can get as frustrated as anybody else. Uh, when I wanted him to say, "God damn it," uh, uh, yeah. you know, which you can't say uh, on network TV. So, and the shorter schedule would have been nice. But by and large, because I've been asked in the era of Trump, if you were doing The West Wing now, what would you do different? And the answer is nothing. Uh, I, I wouldn't change a thing because uh, what here's what the West Wing was about. Uh, by and large, uh, in popular culture, our leaders, our elected officials, they're portrayed either as Machiavellian or as dolts. Um, and this was going to be a show uh, where they were highly competent people uh, who you may disagree with uh, uh, their position on this particular issue, but there's... No doubting that they woke up this morning uh, with our best interest uh, in heart, that public service is a calling for them, and that they are hyper-competent. They may slip on banana peels uh, once in a while, but it's always going to be while reaching uh, for the stars. Uh, uh, there was no cynicism uh, in the show at all. And I think that right now to see a group of very competent people who feel that way would be, uh, you know, like a cold drink of water. You had to get to 22 episodes every year, even back then. What was yes. the right number? Um, you think it would have been like 15, 16? Did you always feel like you had 22 uh, episodes of content that you wanted to get out? No, never. Um, uh, which is why... That's why now is better, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, in terms of the number of episodes, you have to do without a doubt. Because uh, now you get to do exactly the right... Like, I look at something like Breaking Bad, mm -hmm. which actually got better in the last couple of years. And it was like, that dude said everything he wanted to say and nothing was padded. That's right. You didn't have to worry about some number he had to get to. Yeah. Uh, you also have more time to work on each episode, whether, yeah. you know, Breaking Bad, the Sopranos, uh, uh, those shows. Uh, you can you can write an entire season, then shoot that season, and then do post uh, for that whole season, making adjustments uh, along the way as you learn stuff. Uh, and uh, and that's nice, as opposed to the, the way we would make a television show on NBC, which is uh, uh, like literally the moment it comes out of the printer, it's being run over to the stage. We shot yeah. my first drafts. There wasn't a time for a second draft. Yeah. Um, uh, shoot it. You got about uh, 12 days uh, in post, and that goes on the air. What was your favorite moment of the West Wing? Your single favorite where you're just like doing the Fred Flintstone punch on the bicep. You were just so fired up how it turned out. Boy, um, cause that show, I think the legacy of that show for me, other than the cast was just the show had a lot of moments that were kind of indelible. It was right around the time. And I think the Sopranos was like this too. Mm -hmm. It was right around the time people are starting to figure out it just, the show itself can't just be great, but you also have to kind of leave you with the, with the one it, awesome it, three minute stretch of something. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, uh, the three-minute stretches of something that I'll remember, uh, um, we did uh, our, our second season finale. Uh, was called Two Cathedrals, uh, and there was a scene. There's a scene where it's shot in the National Cathedral where Martin Sheen is cursing out God. Um, 
Uh, and then at the end of that episode, set to the Dire Straits song, Brothers in Arms. So I was good. That's why I brought it up. Uh, <laughs> the Brothers in Arms was like. Yeah, that one. Um, I mean, that was like off the charts. Uh that got written actually in a fairly typical way for me, which is I'm completely stuck. I tell my assistant, I'm just going to be driving around in my car uh, uh, for a while. I drive around in my car. I listen to the music I listened to when I was in high school because that's still what I like to listen to. And uh, Brothers in Arms uh, uh, came on. I thought, you know, this would be a great piece of music to set a scene to. And then the whole thing started uh, uh, coming to me and I just reverse engineered it. I worked backwards uh from there and it all worked out smart idea one of the five best possible i thought miami vice was another show that used to do this it almost like they would take the song and try to figure out well but yeah what miami kind of scene I, to put to it michael mann was really good at putting uh like mini music videos uh in the middle of my i was vice. some weird channel was showing season one and i was watching the other day and they used uh a u2 song from the album before the joshua tree that i hadn't heard in forever i think it's called October something. And they play the whole song as they're like, it's the Dennis Farina episode. Uh-huh, yeah. And I was just like, wow, this was like 1984. And they knew they knew at the time I had to use music like that. And most people really didn't figure it out until 15 Vice years later. Broke a lot of ground. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Now you're now you're, now we're talking about language. This is yeah, one okay. of my favorite shows. Um, um, it's it, just the way it was lit, uh, uh, the way it was shot. I mean, that, that was okay. Michael It was Mann. a groundbreaker. Yeah. So, so I want to talk about Studio 60 quick. Okay. So I thought the pilot was one of my favorite pilots of all time. And and then what happened? Is that what you No. <laughs> you caught Perry, who I always thought was, I don't know, one of the most talented act mm-hmm. comedy slash has that drama side. You just caught him at the right point in his career. Like it was like he's not just a friends guy, he can do this too. And he's like phenomenal in that pilot. Yeah. He's he's phenomenal. Uh doing anything. It was like uh, a career year for him. It was almost like an how an athlete will have like that MVP season. Yes. He was like at just peak of his powers. We had um uh he he did uh a guest thing on on the West Wing. Um uh where he I mean he did two episodes at the end of my last year there and then I think he came back and did uh, a a couple more uh after I'd gone. And I mean, there's another guy. We, we mentioned him before uh, in the the group of actors who Bradley are Whitford. known for being funny. Um, uh, but uh, you shouldn't be surprised that they are are other things as well. Yeah. Because what they are are, I mean, what Matthew is, what Matt Perry is, is just a really good actor. Um, and uh, I don't think that he has yes yet done the best thing he's going to do. So what would you do differently about that show? Looking back, it's been twelve years. 12, 11 years. Uh, I, I would write it better. Um, I, I would just be, you know, there. here's the thing about television. Um, uh, that That is better if you're writing a movie or a play. If, if I'm writing a screenplay uh, and it's it's not going well, I've, I've just run into a snowbank, um, uh, I can call the producer or the studio, whoever is waiting for it, and say, listen, um, I've run into some trouble. I know I said I was going to deliver in June. It'll probably be more like August uh, that you'll get the first draft. In television, you've got hard deadlines, the air dates, uh, and you have to meet them. So you have to write even when you're not writing well. Yeah. And that's a tough pill to swallow. And then you have to point a camera at it, and then you have to broadcast it. Uh, and with Studio 60 and then later with the newsroom, um, uh, I just always felt like I had a pebble uh, uh, in my shoe, that I couldn't get it quite right, that I would write some good scenes, 
uh, but I couldn't put together uh, a, an, an entire good episode. The way, you know, a, a basketball team, well, they can't put together four good quarters, right. you know. Well, it goes back uh, to the whole thing where you really need a lot of things to go right you to need get a, this perfectly. A, a lot of things to go right. But there was nothing wrong with Studio 60 that couldn't have been solved by better writing. All right. Social network really quick because okay. we have to go. I didn't realize you had to leave. No problem. Social um, network. Um, uh, I went to, uh, uh, I had lunch uh, with uh, a studio head with, with, I don't know why I'm being, with, with Stacy Snyder, um, uh, who right now is the head of Fox, but at the time she was the head of uh, Universal. Uh, and she said, I just got this book pitch um, uh, that, that you might be interested in. Oh, the, the Ben Mesrick book? Yes. He hadn't written the book yet, but the publisher was sending the pitch for the book to Hollywood Studios, hoping to get the helping to get it set up before the book was even written. Um, and uh, and so Stacy said there was uh, a, a lawsuit. Um, the, there are these other guys claiming that they uh, were the ones who invented Facebook. And just from what she was describing to me, uh, I, I, I was in. Uh, I wanted to do this, uh, and I, I think that. And you didn't know Fincher was in yet. Fincher wasn't in yet. Um, uh, nobody was in yet but me. Uh, I, I was now in, and in fact, I, I wasn't going to wait until Ben had written the book. I was going to start writing now. So Ben and I were essentially writing, uh, at the same time. Then, um, and, and, and by the way, it didn't end up, uh, uh Universal ended up at Sony where Amy Pascal at the time was uh, the chairwoman and Amy and the producer, Scott Rudin. Uh, and this would be the first of now many times, uh, that I've worked with Scott, uh, they thought that I should direct the movie, uh, which I something I'd never done before. I'd never directed anything. Uh, and that scared the hell out of me. Uh, and we said, uh, you know what? Before we pull the trigger uh, on this, let's just, let's just let David Fincher pass, okay? Let, let's send it to David. He'll pass. He passes on everything. And then I'll swallow hard and, uh, uh, and do this. Uh, so it was messengered over to David and about two and a half hours later, I got an email saying, Aaron, it's David Fincher. I'm going to direct the social network. Can I come over? Uh, and it was the beginning of one of the best, uh, creative relationships I've ever had. And he's a genius. Yes, he is. Uh, I hate using the word genius, but it actually seems like he's a genius. He is. And he was, he's a guy you would like very much. And if you can get him to, to do this podcast do it, you think he would do it? Uh, I do. I know that he's a big fan of yours. Oh, wow. Um, That'd uh, be great. He, uh, uh, he's, he, he's, I have a lot of questions about the game. Um, ask him I still all don't the questions know what the in the world about the game. That movie. He's a, <laughs> he'll, he'll try to I tell you. Know. He, uh, he's a great sports fan, knows a lot about sports and he really, he directs, David Fincher. Yeah. Um, a uh, huge sports fan. And in fact, he, uh, in his spare time, uh, directs, uh, a lot of the Nike and Gatorade commercials. Oh, I always um, heard rumors about that. Yeah. They keep it kind of low. Yeah. And he would tell me stories of like, he's doing a Gatorade commercial with Adrian Peterson, you know, and it's Adrian Peterson running the length of the field and just avoiding defenders like crazy. He's flipping them over uh, and everything. And of course, neither the NFL or the Minnesota Vikings are going to allow anyone to touch Adrian Peterson. Yeah, right? yeah. So David's using Adrian Peterson for the close-ups, and no one can touch uh, uh, Adrian. And then for wider shots, 
He's got 20 Adrian Petersons you know, who play college ball and he turns to the defenders. A hundred bucks to anyone who could knock his helmet off. Uh, <laughs> throw him out there. Oh my God. Yeah, those poor guys. They, I mean, so uh, anyway, D- David is a genius. Um, that uh, movie is amazing. Uh, By the way, also of one of the most rewatchable movies of all time. I appreciate it. It's one that. of those like you pop in and you're like, oh, oh, this scene. All right. I'll do 20 minutes here. He's got an incredible eye and he's got an incredible brain. Uh, and uh, and I love him. Did you, you're going into that movie and you're thinking, obviously, if you watch The Social Network, Zuckerberg's not a great guy in that movie. You're not watching that going, oh, this is a good guy. He's he's a, he's a complicated guy. It, I wouldn't say he's a good guy, but then no. you watch what's happened the last five years. It's like, oh, maybe we should have watched the social network a little more closely. Yeah, I, <laughs> I you know, Zuckerberg writing the social network. That was uh, the the first time I had written an antihero uh, in uh, in Mark Zuckerberg. And an antihero isn't a villain. Uh, they leave. They, they they live somewhere uh, uh, between that. And if you're going to write, and this is what I discovered with that. But if you're going to write an antihero, uh, you can't judge that character. Uh, you have to, as the writer, you have to be able to defend that character and you have to write that character like they're making their case to God why they should be allowed into heaven. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I we, have, we could go 20 minutes on this. Can we talk about what your play? Yeah. Okay. So um, uh, it's To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, we just opened on Broadway uh, about three weeks ago. Uh, I've heard of it. It's 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 a it's a pretty well known book. Uh, we we all read it in school, and uh, it's it's tough to talk about without giving spoilers. I, I will tell you that Jeff Daniels is playing Atticus Finch, and it's a tour de force performance. Yes, uh, uh, my guy indeed. It's a phenomenal cast of twenty four, uh, uh, directed by Bartlett Sher, who is a great director of wonderfully theatrical. Uh, uh, productions in his spare time when he's not directing on Broadway, he directs operas for the Met. Uh, but um, this is sort of a new look at To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, it's not meant to be a museum piece or a, a piece of nostalgia or an homage uh, to anything. Um, as soon as the curtain goes up, uh, because of what you're looking at and because of what you're hearing, you understand um, that uh, uh, this is going to be a new experience for you. Wow, it's not going to awesome. take you back to eighth grade. We didn't get to talk about the newsroom, and we get to talk about uh, well the, the internet, and it's but you, so you have to come back. I, I would love some, to come back. I left some um, meat on the bone. Give give one tip to the fledgling writers out there. Uh, okay, uh, uh, here it is. Um, uh, find a copy of the screenplay of a movie that you like. Uh, put the movie on TV or on your computer screen with a screenplay in your lap and read along with the movie and start to notice what the movie was like when it was on the page, uh, uh, how how someone wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, uh, for instance. That was my last question. Where our friend William Goldman died. I know. Uh, give uh, me one give one Goldman story and then we're done. Sure. Um, well, well, first of all, let me say, I, th- I think he's the best uh, a screenwriter who ever lived. I was lucky enough that he took me under his wing uh, when when I was in my twenties. Um, uh, but uh, one William Goldman story when uh, when there are so many. Uh, okay, uh, when he was writing uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he had a secret, and this is also for uh, for young screenwriters. 
it's great to have a secret. Um, and, and what I mean is something that you know about these characters that nobody else knows that's going to come as a big surprise. Uh, now, here's a Butch and Sundance spoiler coming in three. Now, people two. saw it. Okay. Uh, Bill Goldman knew that the Sundance kid didn't know how to swim. Um, and so he just couldn't wait to get to uh, uh, that cliff. And that's what you want to be doing when, when you're a writer. You want to be writing, I just can't wait to get to the edge of that cliff. I, I went to his memorial service. Mm-hmm. And I left with a guest to go because there was a Knicks game. And I want to go to the Knicks game because it was Giannis. And I feel like he would have approved. There's no doubt about it. And then the Knicks won in overtime. And I was like, this is weird. Because the Knicks suck. They have no business beating Giannis. Uh, And I was like, this is only happening because of Goldman. You ever read a book that Goldman wrote with Mike Lupa? My favorite sports book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for doing this. This is great. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. 